I wanted to start this morning's message off um, that uh, a family in our church uh, gifted me with something last week that I just thought was outstanding. Uh, it's a warning to all of you, but most importantly, my kids. And so I don't know if the camera, if, uh, if you guys can get this. Uh, it's a coffee mug. Uh, go ahead, zoom in on this bad boy right here. There it is. Just be careful or you'll end up in my sermon. So fair warning to everybody. Uh, especially when you live in the house of a preacher. Uh, and so big thanks to uh, the family that gave this to me. I love it. Uh, ready getting some, some good use out of it. You know, while I was in middle school, I had a weird obsession with a particular TV show in which they would gather three contestants and kind of test how far they could push themselves. And these tests revolve around a variety of fears. Uh, could you climb this height? Could you walk across this, this tight wire? Uh, how do you do uh, being dropped into a coffin filled with snakes? Can you eat these random things that around the world are considered delicacies and yet we would find utterly disgusting? Anybody know what show I'm referring to? Fear Factor. This is Joe Rogan for the OG. So those of you who are younger, this is Joe before you know him as Joe Rogan Experience Guy. And it was funny, in a recent uh, uh, interview, and he was reflecting on Fear Factor. Fear Factor ran for six seasons. And somebody asked him, like, why do you think that this show so simple lasted uh, for six seasons? Like, couldn't you run out of things to do? And he said, in the six years, they only had one uh, obstacle can uh, canceled, which was something about, like, riding a bull or something like that. And, uh, but he said uh, the, the specialty of Fear Factor was the simple premise, is that do people have an inner resolve? Do they have an inner why that would compel them past their fears? Is there something internally that people can tap into in order to do things that maybe their fears would normally hold them back from? You know, there's another show that I often watch in middle school, early high school to kind of feel good about myself. And it was called, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And then you watch this show and you realize you feel really bad about yourself because you're a lot dumber than a lot of fifth graders. So do you guys wanna play a few questions this morning? So here we go. We're going to play Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? And if you know the answer, you can just shout it out, but wait till I finish reading the question, all right? So here's the first one. First question. In classical music, what instruments comprise the quartet? Do, 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 do. I'm going to, that's Jeopardy, but it'll take too long. The correct answer is two violins, a viola, and one cello. Now, I don't know the difference between a violin or viola, some of you string people out there are probably like, this is the worst, but uh, I do not know the difference. Oh, here's another one. In colonial America, during the colonial America, what was the Sugar Act? Definitely. What would you define the Sugar Act as? It was a tax. I heard someone say a tax, but a tax on what? It was specifically a tax on molasses and wine. And molasses and wine. Uh, here's one. Uh, what is the longest river in America? Kind of a trick question. A lot of people probably think it's the Mississippi. Uh, that's the one that spans north to south, but is actually the Missouri. The Missouri River is technically the longest river. And here's the last one is, can you name the five W's of story development? For writing a good story, what are the five W's? Start you out here. Who, what, where, when, and why? Uh, first church I worked at was uh, in the south in Knoxville, Knoxville, Tennessee, Murrillville. And our lead pastor at the time, he wouldn't say why, he would say why, why. And that's what we're kind of talking about today is why. Of those five questions, who, what, where, when, and why, you might add how in there, why is above and beyond the most powerful. 
In 2009, arguably the greatest TED Talk, most popular TED Talk of all time was given by a man by the name of Simon Sinek, and it launched his career. This book, Start With Why, he has more books now he's written, but he traces it back to this 10-minute, I think it's 13-minute speech that he gave on the power of why and how certain individuals or certain corporations have found out that by identifying their why has made them successful. And this is what he says in the book. He says, our whys are an articulation of who we are. For most, a good why statement is simple. It's easy to understand and a reflection of the person to whom it belongs. That's how you know someone's smart. They know the difference between who and whom. And he said, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Why speaks to motivation. Why speaks to purpose. It speaks to reason. If you ever watch any crime investigation shows, they talk about the MO, the modus operandi, the why behind this person doing the things that they are. In this past year, as I was praying for this sermon, I was thinking about some of the whys that I had that, that came across and some silly ones where I remember specifically is at one point I sat down uh, to watch a movie called Cocaine Bear. And the first thought in my mind was, why is this movie ever created in the first place? And then I watched it, spent two other hours by myself in our house watching, and at the end, I thought to myself, why does this movie exist in the first place? But it was fantastic. If you've never seen it, it's a good one. Uh, Every Thanksgiving, I ask why when I see Jones Soda, they release their Thanksgiving meal in a bottle. It's like six or seven sodas, and they're different flavors, turkey, mashed potatoes, stuffing, absolutely disgusting, and somebody thought that this was a great idea. Speaking of good ideas that I actually don't agree with is you can look onto Amazon, and you can find these finger covers for when you're eating Cheetos so the cheese dust doesn't stick to your fingers. And I was thinking about it, I saw it this week, and I was like, that's the dumbest idea ever because the best part, everybody knows this, the best part about eating Cheetos is licking your fingers afterwards, right? It's gross. We all do it, okay? Church is a safe place. We're here, okay? There's some silly whys that we might have in life, but then there's also some deeper whys. And we're kind of, kind of wrapping up this series. We're, we're kind of in, ending January to this new year, and maybe this year brought some whys into your life. Maybe it brought some whys into your household. Maybe you're wrestling with some big decisions based on this idea of why or of purpose, Maybe your why is something like mine. I struggle with sometimes asking myself, Eric, why is it so easy for you to get lazy and not remain disciplined? Why is it so easy for you to eat so many donuts and not broccoli? Why is it? You might be asking yourself, why is it harder for me to take that step of courage? Why is it difficult for me to know what I know I ought to do, but I sometimes resist and don't take that step? And for many of us in the family of God, when it comes to following Jesus, you might wrestle with a why that I wrestle with. Is why do we do this in the first place? What is the purpose that God has instilled into me to not just live this life, have the best and most joyful life that I have, the abundant life, the blessed life that God has in store for us, but also a why that has purpose to getting up each and every day and living it not for myself, but for his glory. So here's my thing. As we talk about this today, we're talking about this idea of why. When it comes down to a who, what, where, when, or even how, the chances are you can answer all of those. You can answer a who, what, where, when, or how pretty easily of almost anything in life. But that will never sustain you. Why will? If you have a clear, defined 
purpose of why you do what you do. Why you do what you do with who you do it, where you do it, and how. If you have a clearly defined why or purpose, that will sustain you. But if you kind of chase after who's or what's or how's, without a why, they will fade. Because at some point, at some point, it's not going to seem worth it. It doesn't seem like it's actually going to have the ROI that you desire. And we all know this deep down. I know this, you know this, is that a life without why, a life without purpose, seems kind of meaningless, frustrating, mundane. How do we discover a why, a purpose? Not just for this life, but one that connects to our eternity with God the Father. How do we get rid of this this giant epidemic in our lives, in our society today of walking around aimlessly without a direction to go to? So that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have a Bible, join me in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 is where we're going to kind of post up shop for today. If you are new with us, man, we are so glad to have you. Uh, Every single week we encourage you to bring a Bible, whether it's a physical Bible or a Bible on your phone. You can turn that to Galatians chapter 1. Every week we study the Word of God because we believe that when we get into the Word of God, we find treasures for our lives to love Him, love our neighbor, to help each other take next steps in following Jesus as disciples of Him. The Galatians is found in the back of your Bible, you can hit the dude's names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, go to the right, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, then you'll hit Galatians. And we were wrapping up this series today, you in five years. Everybody say five years. You in five years is going to be different. You're not just going to be five years older, but things about you will have changed in five years. And we built this series on this premise that we tend to overestimate what we can accomplish in one year and underestimate what we can accomplish in five. And the challenge has been, can you consistently do small things over and over and over again and see the compound interest? And our big challenge has been that hopefully you just don't want to lose some pounds, maybe learn a new skill or hobby, but in five years, you can confidently and boldly say you are closer to Jesus than ever before. And so today we're kind of talking about this why, this why to have purpose, to pursue a change in five years. We'll wrap up this series today. Next week, give you a little hint. We're kicking off a study through the book of John, and so it's going to be a good one, but we'll join in there. Galatians chapter 1. If you're there, say there. Let's dive into the word of God. Reading verse 1, then I'll skip to verse 13. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by men, but by Jesus Christ, and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So Paul's kind of recognizing, I'm the one, I'm the dude who wrote this. Skip with me to verse 13. He begins, he says, For you have heard of my previous way. If you have Bible taking notes, circle, highlight, underline that phrase, previous way of life in Judaism and how intensely I persecuted the church. If you're, you can make a little line there. Your previous life you were persecuting the church of God, and I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism before my own age among my own people, and I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb, called me by his grace 
He was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And my immediate response was not to consult any other human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia and I later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, everybody say three years. Note that phrase there. Three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and I stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Some of you didn't know this. Jesus had a brother, half-brother. His name was James. And I assure before God what I was writing to you was no lie. And then he says, then I went. Annotate that. Underline that. Then I went to Syria and to Sicilia, and I was personally known and unknown to the churches in Judea there that are in Christ. They only heard the report, and this is so beautiful. I love this part. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. The Apostle Paul writes, uh, most scholars believe that the letter to the church in South Galatia was his first letter. Of all the 13 letters that he comprises, and he gives us the longest kind of, we sometimes refer to as testimony of who he was, where he was, how he found himself doing what he did. And he also provides his undeniable purpose of how he was to become arguably the most influential Christian of all time. We don't call Jesus a Christian because Christians are disciples, true, genuine Christians. They are followers of Jesus. Jesus is Lord. He is Messiah. He is not a Christian. He is Lord. He is Savior. And so the Apostle Paul comes along and he kind of gives this story. Let me tell you of how I was able to put one foot in front of the other. Because if you were to take Paul's entire lifeline and look at it as like a, like a Hallmark movie, he has a pretty radical life. He has a pretty zealous life, antagonistic towards God, the things of Yahweh, the church. He then be, has a, a radical, in a moment, transformation. And then he goes on mission. And he has three missionary journeys that all span about three years-ish or so each. He is one of the most influential people. He constantly gets kicked out of cities. He has a physical ailment that he cannot get rid of. He is shipwrecked several times. He is beaten within an inch of his life on three different occasions. There's something to say is that when you look at Paul's life, a lot of us would say, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I don't want in. I might do a couple hard things. I might do a couple uncomfortable things. But literally getting to this point, how did Paul do it? How was he able to continue? After that first shipwreck, you'd probably think, I ain't getting on another boat. After getting beaten to an inch of his life, he probably says, next time I'm around those type of people, you know, I'm probably going to choose my words a little bit more carefully. But he carried on because of the why, the purpose that God had given to him. He begins kind of his story by saying, you have heard of my previous way of life. Let me just tell you about who the Apostle Paul was before he was the Apostle Paul. He was a guy by the name of Saul, and he gives us, he was a Pharisee. He said, I was extremely zealous. This is his way of saying, yo, you kind of know about me and my story. You know kind of the hood I'm from. You know kind of some of the, the gang that I kind of rolled with. He's saying that, that, that we were the, the elite of the elite, and of the elite of the elite, I was the elitist. And you, you could read all about my exploits on, uh, in the magazines. TMZ would come film. I did an episode with Cribs on MTV. Let me tell you, you guys know all about me. And Paul is kind of saying, and of these Pharisees, of these super religious people, I was number one. 
And it's interesting because if you go back to Jesus and read kind of his life and story, his biggest enemy was the Pharisees. He calls them whitewashed tombs at one point. It's a harsh word. It's a negative word. And if we were to translate it into our language, I would probably get kicked off the stage saying that phrase. A whitewashed tomb is somebody who looks good on the outside. They have it all together, but on the inside, they're just dead. And that's who Paul was. He was the leader of the people who looked like they had life together, but they were dead on the inside. He said, that's who I was. You guys know about me. You guys know about my story. You kind of know where I came from. And he has this radical moment. He's on the road to Damascus. He encounters the Spirit of God as he's getting ready to go persecute more men, women, and children for against the name of Jesus Christ. Literally, he's on the road. He's, where are we going, Paul or Saul? We're going to Damascus. What are we going to do? We're going to go kill some more Christians. They're like, yeah, let's do it. All right, follow me. And he gets this blinding light. And he falls over and the voice of God speaks to him. He says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And in that moment, in that instance, he knows it's the spirit of God. It transforms his life. You ever been just going on your own merry way? Living your life as you see fit? Doing what you think is good, what you ought to do, what seems right to you, and God interrupts. You ever have a plan, a purpose, a path laid out for yourself, and God kind of sides right in and says, yeah, that ain't what I got for you. It's jarring. It's frustrating. And it's up to us to decide whether or not we are going to listen. But the thing is, when you think about who the Apostle Paul was, there's nobody who should not have been allowed to be a messenger for God, one would think, on the surface. But that's where we learn about the greatness of who God is. It's because God takes Paul's previous way of life, his past, and he turns it into a path to follow after him. And God can do the same for you and I or anyone in the world today that God redeems a past into a path. It's the first thing that Paul says, hey, hey, I have a past. You've all heard about it. You know who I am. You know what I've done. I have a previous way, a past. But God met me, redeemed me, and now I am on a different path. I'm just going to venture to guess that your previous life or past is not nearly as tattered as the Apostle Paul's was. Just going to throw that out there and just guess. I'd also venture to guess that some of you in the room today, you are still living in your previous life. You are still living in your past. You have yet to experience the graciousness, the love, the surrender to Jesus. He's knocked on your heart a few times. You're even in a church this morning. And yet the one thing that he wants you to know is no matter your past, no matter your previous life, he wants to invite you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to restore you to a life that will radically transform your heart, your mind, your soul, your family, everything about you. And you have yet to say yes. By grace, through faith. And so some of you this morning, that's what you need to simply hear. Is that God wants to redeem your past and turn it into a path. Others of you, you need to hear that and you need to be reminded of that. 
And the crazy thing is it's not random for the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul wasn't like the one guy chosen who had a past. God's habit, God's pattern is to take pasts and turn them into paths for his glory, for people who will surrender their lives. He wasn't the only one. Moses was a murderer, scaredy cat, ran away from home. Rahab was a prostitute who's now found in the lineage of Jesus. David, a man after God's own heart, was an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. Joseph was a punky little brother that we all hated. Somehow God used him too. You see, Satan wants to get you to think that your past is a roadblock to the path of Jesus. Satan would, would love it if you say, I've heard the gospel, I see the message, I, will know, I want to know more of what Jesus has for me, but you tell yourself, actually, though, I think because of who I was, because of what I've done, I can't actually follow Jesus because of my past. And the thing about that is every past is different. But no past is prohibited to following Jesus. That's why Paul says, for it is by grace that I have been called. It's the first thing Paul says, God redeems a past into a path. But then he says, so then I spent three years preparing. After being blinded, he goes to Damascus. He finds a man by the name of Ananias, and he spends three years in preparation. He does some preaching right there up front in the middle, but he doesn't really go anywhere. He gets under wise counsel. He finds people who are mature, following after the way of God, and he prepares for three years before he gets fully sent out. And some of us might say, well, if, if the spirit of God was in him and he kind of had his background of history, at least his knowledge of the Torah, the Old Testament, uh, scriptures, the prophets, all that type of stuff, why couldn't he just be released? It doesn't really say, but my guess is after persecuting God's church, he's got some internal stuff he had to work through. And we wouldn't dare do the same thing either. Somebody studies for 12 years to become a surgeon. They don't just say, cool, you passed all the tests, you filled out the scantrons the right way, you circled all the right spots on the charts. All right, here's a scalpel, have fun. You clearly know what to do. No, no, we say you got to go to residency. you got to study, you got to prepare, you got to have wise, mature people show you how to use your knowledge correctly because it's one thing to know right in this life. It's a whole other thing to do right. Paul knew right after this shift, but he had to learn how to do right, how to let Jesus shape and mold his past into a path. So he prepares for three years. You see, preparation is necessary for your purpose. Whatever purpose you are chasing in life, you need to prepare for it. If you want to run a marathon, chances are you're going to need to prepare probably just a little bit. If you want to learn a new skill or hobby, you got to learn the basics, the foundations. If you want to pick up a guitar, you practice your, your scales over and over and over again. See, Paul knew he couldn't be persecuting Jesus and preaching at the same time. And it took intentionality to submit to Ananias, letting some dust settle before he was ready to be sent out. You know, there's this saying that sometimes uh, is out there. Maybe you've heard it before. That God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. It's a great phrase. I think it's a powerful phrase. But I think it also says, if God has called you to do something, just go, just dive straight in. And, and it's kind of like, no, every story in Scripture, there's a preparation season needed before we fully step into it. 
And so I'd like to say is that, is that, yes, while God equips the called, he must first, though, equip the called. You don't have to have it all together. You don't have to know all the answers. You don't have to have all the right education. You don't have to have anything in place for God to call you to do something. But in order for you to fully step into that new life, that new vision, that new mission, that new why, that new purpose, you must be prepared in order to handle what comes with it. You might even know your purpose, identify how your past will become a path to, uh, to, to worship, to bring others, but the oil over that anointing only comes from an obedient season first. Because God's never going to send somebody into battle unless they are truly ready. Even the Apostle Paul was not sent out until after a season of preparation. So don't you dare think that you can skip yours. Preparation, though, isn't for perfection. It's to see if we can truly surrender and to submit to the Spirit of God in our lives. So Paul says, God's turning my past into a path. I spent three years preparing for my purpose. And then he follows it up. He says, so then I went to Syria. Then I went to these new places, places unknown to the gospel. He is then sent out over decades to reach the most people for Jesus, arguably over anybody in human history. If you want kind of his stat lines, the Apostle Paul had kind of like his own little uh, uh, card, right? On the back, it would probably say three missionary journeys, all of them successful-ish. 20-plus churches started. Anywhere from 300 to 3,000 disciples made because of his direct ministry, not to mention the ministry of the churches he began. But I think if you were to ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, what is the best part of your story? Paul, what is the the greatest thing of your purpose that you want people to know? He's not going to talk about how many disciples he made per se. He probably wouldn't tell you about, yeah, you remember that church in Ephesus? Oof, that one was... That was a good one. That was, I was really proud of that one. It's that phrase he gives that I can, I can just see it, I can hear it, that he's proud. The man who was persecuting is now preaching to us that gospel. So I'm a man who's been restored, redeemed. I'm a man with purpose. I am a man with why. I have found a mission. Because of my past, God put me on a path. He prepared me for my purpose. And now here I am before you. And so I don't know what purpose you may or may not be wrestling with in your life today. You might be wrestling with a career change. You might be wrestling with the selling of a business. You might be wrestling with a relationship. You might be wrestling with who knows what. And I just want to give this advice to you from the Apostle Paul is that to live in your purpose, you must live on purpose. So in order for you to live into the purpose that God has called you to in this life, whatever it may be, you must live on purpose with intentionality. You must seek it out. Do you know that you have a purpose? Do you know that there is a why for your life? I think many of us struggle with this this idea and this concept. Why am I here? Why am I on this earth? What am I called to do? And then we get stuck in all the other questions. 
who, where, what, how, when. But if you don't have that defined why first, that foundation, no matter what you put on top of it, it's not going to stand firm. And your why doesn't necessarily have to be as a church planner, getting shipwrecked, beaten within an inch of your life, evangelizing to as many people who will hear it. Your why could be as simple as, well, should I take this promotion or not? But if you don't have a why, you might just take it for the sole purpose that more money is coming along with it. But have you considered what or what does not come along with it? Will it tie up your schedule? Will it give you more stress? Will it hold you back from being involved in community or church? Will it involve you uh, to, to, to have time to raise and disciple your kids if you have them? Or is there going to be stressors that added on that will hold you back? If you don't have a why, you might make the decision based on what? Maybe you're trying to face a decision of, I know God has given me a purpose, but I first need to close up shop over here. I need to kind of get this thing in order first, get that taken care of so I can step into this new thing. But the thing is, is there is probably 500 hows or whens in order to get you to the purpose. But if Jesus has said to you, this is specifically what I have asked you to do, your why is foundational. He will not let you go. He will not let you fail. He will be with you every single step of the way. You have a why. You have a purpose. But do you believe it? And have you found it? Let me share you a story of a man by the name of Alan Klein. I read it this week. Uh, it says this. He's 80 years old. He says, when I was 40, my wife died of a rare liver disease. She was 34. At the time, we had a 10-year-old daughter, and I was the co-owner of a successful silkscreen business in San Francisco. After her death, I realized there was something bigger I needed to do in my life, but I had no idea what it was. So I sold my half of the business to my partner, and I waited for guidance to do, uh, what to do next. And my wife had a great sense of humor. And although there were lots of tears during the three years of her terminal illness, there was a lot of laughter. And after she died, I realized how important that laughter was, even though it was often brief in how it helped me. Her and those around her deal with her illness. I went back to school to learn about therapeutic humor. I started speaking about it and volunteered with people who were dying to see how to use how, uh, used humor to help them cope. And all of that became fodder for my first book, The Healing Power of Humor, which is now in its ninth foreign language. This man had a purpose and he had a why that people probably said, you're stupid, you're dumb, that is the weirdest thing. Why would you give up the successful business and career? He said, because my why has told me otherwise. I love how Pastor Craig Rochelle put it in a recent message. He said, your life is too valuable, your calling is too great, and your God is too good for you to waste your life on meaningless things. Well, this is what Jesus said. I mean, he put it best. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39 here. He says, if you cling to your life, there it is. There you go. So if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, 
you will find it. I think the greatest deterrent for us as disciples of Jesus is when we cling to life as we see fit. As we hold tight to the things of this world as others tell us. As society tells us. As the stock market tells us. As culture would have it. And Jesus puts it point like, if you want to have purpose, if you want to have why, if you want to step into something transformative, if you want your past to be turned into a path, if you want to have something that you can say, when you take that final breath, you are confident in hearing Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. He says one thing and one thing only. Do not cling to the purposes of this life. Cling to me. Give up those things. Cling to me and then you will find it. And the thing is, I think for a lot of us, is we get nervous. We get scared. Well, if I, if I go all in and follow Jesus, is he going to tell me to sell my house? Maybe. But probably not. Is he going to take away all of my money while my career just, just kind of crumble? Maybe. Probably not. See, the the thing that I think Jesus wants for his disciples is to live with purpose where you are, as you are. That means if you own a business, you run and own that business as a disciple first and foremost so that the people who work for you say, there's something different about you as this boss. My friends, they they work in different departments, they work with other people, but there is something different about you. People want to be on your team because of how you lead them. That there's a way you schedule your time. There's a way that you manage your calendar so much so that friends take notice. Hey, it seems to me that, that when these things happen, you kind of always cancel. Why is that? Well, it's because, you know, we prioritize community. We prioritize being with our church family. We prioritize this part of our schedule so that we can walk closely with Jesus. And my biggest point is this. When it comes to your purpose, is there is somebody in the world right now waiting for you to step into yours if you haven't. There is somebody whose future depends on you stepping into your purpose like never before. You might not know it. They might not know it. But somebody's future is waiting for you to stop clinging to something of this life so you can step further into your purpose with Jesus. Don't be boring. Don't be, don't be lame, don't be selfish, don't be mundane, don't be with just the tides and the currents that when that final breath is taken for you, will you have left a legacy? Because the only thing that lasts is that which is eternal. And if the legacy you give to your family or to other people is a legacy of cash, a legacy of land, a legacy of a workplace, all of that stuff could be gone in an instant. The only legacy that you can genuinely live, the only purpose that can outlive you and into the next life is a life abundant and full with Jesus Christ. So where are you with yours? Five years from now, you in five years, will you have stepped further into that purpose that God has called you to be? Whether it's because you're a husband, a father, a mother, a wife, a son, a daughter, a student, a teacher, a business owner. Whether it's somebody who's an accountant, you like spreadsheets and stuff, whatever. 
whether it's, it's somebody who, who helps people make wiser uh, choices, maybe it's a, a counselor, maybe it's somebody who's in the, on the verge of starting a business, should I expand? Now, I don't know. But all I can really tell you is that there's a decision that you can probably make that will hold you back from your purpose in Jesus, and there's probably a decision that you can make that will push you that much closer. So I'll close with this, this thought for us this morning as we wrap it up. I'm going to clear this out. Close up with this idea, you in five years, if you have not identified and stepped into your purpose, consider this. Are you a purpose sitter, a purpose quitter, or a purpose submitter? Are you a purpose sitter right now? Are you somebody who you're just sitting on your hands? You're going through life as you want. You're going through, you got your plan. Everything is is going according to what you have set up. Maybe you're sitting on your hands because you don't think you're redeemable. You don't think you're lovable. You don't think you are valued by God because of your past. Are you just sitting on your purpose because you're comfortable? Because you like the way things are? And so you have no intention. I'm going to challenge you to say that the spirit, if you want him to move in your life, if you want to experience the greatness and the goodness of God, you got to get off your butt. you got to do something differently. Some of you, you might be purpose quitters, and these are the ones that I think are the scariest. I was in this boat for like 20-something years. God made it abundant, clear. Eric, I've given you a gift. I've given you talents. I want you to go into ministry. And I said, great, cool. I'm going to go into pre-med school and college, and I'm going to follow this plan. i got this path laid out for me. I'm going to make millions of dollars. I'm going to hang out with a professional. It's going to be amazing. And God was like, okay, cool. I'll be waiting for you when it's time. Some of us, we, we quit on our purpose in front of God because we don't like it. We don't like what it might mean. and We don't like what it might mean giving up. We don't like what it might mean sacrificing and submitting. And I can tell you fully, boldly, and confidently is if you are abundantly clear that God is calling you to do something big, drastic, or a massive, 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 massive change, and you feel like you want to quit, you're probably heading in the right direction because the Spirit is going to challenge you to do amazing things for him and his glory. Because he ultimately wants us all to be purpose submitters. God, this life is yours. This house is yours. This workplace is yours. This business is yours. This checkbook is yours. This family is yours. This relationship is yours. And Jesus, I submit it all to you. You in five years. You in five years. What small habits could you put in place to see the spiritual interest compound in amazing ways? so that you can fully submit to the purpose that God has for you in this life. As we continue to worship this morning, we're going to prepare for a time of communion. But I'm going to put something else out there is uh, after service, if, if the Spirit is saying something to you, maybe he's been tugging on your heart. Maybe this is one of those, was Eric listening to our conversation last week? Was Eric with us in the car? We've been talking about some of these things. I'm telling you straight up. I wasn't, okay? That'd be creepy. The government might be listening to you. I'm not, all right? (laughs) Let me just say this. If that is you, if you're wrestling with something, I'm going to sit up here after service and invite you to come talk to me. I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. I want to pray over you. 
if you're kind of wrestling with a decision or a choice and you just need somebody to bounce that off of, man, I would love to just talk with you about that. There are big changes, scary changes, monumental changes you might be wrestling with. But man, let me tell you, they can be worth it. So we go into a time of communion. We remember when Paul says, it is for by grace that I have been saved. It is for by grace that I have been called. It is for by grace that I have found this new purpose in life. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross, went to the grave, rose three days later. And the cracker represents the body of bread broken for you or the body of Christ broken for you. And the juice represents the blood of Christ shed for you. And let me tell you, if you are here this morning and you have not stepped into faith, if you are still on your path, Jesus wants to save, restore, and redeem you. Do not let today go by without saying, I repent of my sin by grace through faith. I want to become a fully submitted follower, disciple of Jesus. And for those of us who who are in the family of God already, I just want to challenge you, you in five years, how might you look different by letting the Spirit move in your life? Let me pray as we continue to worship. Jesus, we open ourselves to hear from your Spirit this morning. Help us identify our purpose in life so that we can live for your glory in your glory alone.